0: So this is episode number two, all about prayer, our deep series on how to pray, why we should pray, what prayer is. In the last episode, we talked about, hey, prayer is, and I took this from John Piper, prayer is defined in scripture as talking to God with intention and purpose um, according to his word as his beloved child. All four of those components are necessary for biblical prayer. Meaning prayer is communication to God. Prayer is intentional, right? There's purpose behind what you're doing. There's thoughtfulness. Prayer is coming to God, knowing who I am as I approach Him. And then prayer is also considering who God is, what He's said, what He's promised in His Word as I pray. Okay, so those four components of prayer are key. We also talked about how prayer, because people go, What's the purpose of prayer? And, you know, we talked about how prayer has, well, God has allowed prayer to be the method of causing things in our world. And in our life and so I opened this message earlier talking to no one saying look so many people aren't seeing the power of God in their life they're not seeing the freedom God promises like when it comes to freedom from addiction or freedom from loneliness or freedom from isolation and depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts people aren't seeing the joy and impact and purpose and and direction that they're, they're you know they're wanting not only because of this but primarily I believe prayer a lack of prayer is at the core of those things Meaning a lot of the issues in life, I'm not going to boil them all down to just pray harder, just pray more. That's not what I'm going to do. But I'm going to say that prayer is often a huge component of why certain things are happening in our life or why certain things aren't moving forward. Of course, there's other variables we can consider. God's timing, what he wants for you, his plan. But you also got to understand so many of us aren't seeing the best that God has for us because we don't have enough we don't have a prayer life we don't pray about everything instead we're anxious about everything you know so so whatever it it is in your life that you're praying for perspective about a situation you know desire for your children to come to know christ or you know financial provision and and knowing which job to choose in this situation whatever situation you're in whatever issues you see spiraling around your life and in your neighborhood and in your world a lot of the times prayer is a huge part of seeing those things change and again i'm not going to boil everything down to just pray harder just prayer's the fix but i wonder how many things in our life god intends to change and do and adjust and 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 move us into if we would just pray and so many people don't pray because they don't know why they should pray They don't see the value in prayer. They don't understand, you know, why would I want to pray? What does it do? What does it accomplish? So if you're purpose driven, if you're someone that's like, I need to know 10 reasons why I should do this before I even think about doing it. This is the message for you. Um, The first thing you really need to know, and we're going to answer this question today. I think I'm recovered enough from sweating to put these on. The big question today is why should we pray? And there's a number of ways to answer that. There really is. There's a plethora of ways that we could explore. Here's why you should pray. Here's your motivation. But here's what I want you to understand. If you don't see the value in something, you're less likely to do it. Or you're at least less likely to do it consistently or long term. So if you're someone that's like, I really want to pray. I don't have the devotion. I don't have the commitment. I don't have that plan and strategy or motivation. You need to see the value in prayer first. First. If you don't see the value in something, you won't stay consistent in something. So the value in prayer, if you want to really see the power of God in your life, the best that God has for you is absolutely, um, it absolutely requires prayer. There's no way around it. There is no way around it. Prayer is a necessary element and ingredient to the recipe called God's best for your life. It's It's a necessary component. And if you're like, I want to pray, I just don't have enough desire or motivation or see the value in it to develop a long-term prayer life and commitment. Well, then hopefully by the end of this, you will. Because the value in prayer, what it accomplishes, why we should pray, what should motivate us is, number one, number one, and this isn't even in my notes. This is just what comes to mind. The heart of prayer in general is that this is a God-given grace to approach God and have relationship with him. That has to be at the forefront of every prayer is that just being here is already enough. Just being able to voice my requests and petitions to the almighty king of the universe, right? The eternally existent one who needs nothing and relies on nothing and sustains all things. The ability to communicate to him at all is already grace enough. But number one, prayer makes a difference. Prayer makes a fantastic difference in our life, in our world, in our family, in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our city, in every sphere of influence, in every environment. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer causes things. And usually when this gets brought up, a lot of people bring in the question, does prayer change God's mind? Don't answer that in the chat. Like I'm telling you, don't answer that. There's no real... It's not as one-dimensional as you think, where it's like, here's the answer. I promise you that. But we're going to explore that. So hold your thoughts. I know you all are just just keyboard warriors. I'm ready to tell people why it changes God's mind or why it doesn't. Hold on. Please don't say anything yet, because you might give away my notes too. But prayer makes a difference. In Genesis 25-21, we have a barren Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and Isaac prays. We don't know how long she's barren. But Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, Rebecca, his wife, conceived. I just want to give you a, I could have pulled from thousands of examples in scripture and in human history of God answering prayers, of God moving because someone asked him to, of God coming through because someone petitioned the king. I could give you thousands of examples. So you can probably understand why I'm only giving you seven because it's overwhelming. The data is overwhelming. You go and study. You see the faithfulness of God in human history. But for now, I just want to look at a few. Someone like Isaac, who's looking at a barren wife going, our legacy lies in children. Our, our, our future lies in having a child. I mean, this was in this patriarchal society where legacy and name and, and reputation was, was everything. And having that in a child, you can understand the, the desperation in Isaac to see his wife have a child. Any petitions. Thank you, Jessica, for that gift. You're amazing. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. Just come here and listen. Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Guys, this is the power of prayer. It doesn't say when she conceived. It doesn't say how quickly she conceived. It just says the Lord regarded her prayer. We know that, or his prayer, because she conceived. Do you know why? Because Isaac prayed. So I wonder if barrenness, though not from God directly. I wonder if barrenness, a part of God's plan for Isaac and Rebekah, was a way in which Isaac could see the glory of God through an answered prayer. Just my speculation. Numbers eleven two, 2 A fire breaks out in the camp of Israel because the people have not listened to God. They're rebelling, rejecting his commands. And we have Moses. You, can you understand? Like, you, you cannot understand the damage control that Moses has to deal with. You know, roughly a million, two billion, two million people, two billion, one million, two million people that brought out of Egypt, depending on how you read history and what you think and how things progressed. There's a lot of people to oversee and now a fire breaks out in the camp and you're the one overseeing and leading the people and they're looking to you going, there's a fire breaking out and the people cry out to Moses and Moses prays and the fire died down. What? What? God answered? I just like that. Even though this, this fire was the consequence for the sin of his people, God answered Moses. Prayer makes a difference. Prayer causes things and prayer changes things. First Samuel one twenty seven. we have a barren Hannah. Hannah's the wife of Elkanah, one of the wives of Elkanah. Don't correct my pronunciation, Marcus. And Hannah is really longing for a child. So much so that she's weeping, weeping, weeping in front of the high priest. in the. In, I believe it's in the temple, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, they didn't have the temple yet, so it couldn't have been. Either way, it's the place where the Ark of the Covenant remains and that location and where the high priest is. Shiloh, if I'm not mistaken, please be Shiloh so I don't sound stupid. Please be Shiloh. Either way. Hannah's here praying. The location doesn't matter. Yeah, Shiloh. Yes, I'm not an idiot. So Hannah's praying, and she's desperate. She's, she's weeping, tears of bitterness and, and desperation. And then she has a child. God answers her request. God answers her request. You'll see a lot of the times God answering prayers in Scripture has to do with barren wombs. Yeah. Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. Elizabeth. The list goes on and on. Um, Samson's mommy. Forget her name. Manoah's her husband. God. This is how Hannah approaches Eli, the high priest, after she has Samuel. And it's been a number of years. She brings Samuel to the high priest. And she goes, see, Marcus, this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition. From barrenness to childbirth, prayer changes things. Second Kings 6, this is one of the coolest examples of prayer changing things. Elisha is in a small town. The Syrian army is encamped on the mountains coming down. Elisha's standing, the prophet is standing with his servant who's freaking out, losing his mind, going, we're dead. And Elisha's looking at him like Master Yoda going, "Hmm." calm as can be just a rock of a man and Elisha prays and says Lord please open the eyes of the young man boom eyes opened why well the servant looks out behold the mountain was full of horses chariots of fire all around Elisha why because Elisha prayed I could have taken you to Joshua the sun standing still never a day been like that in in history since then never will be a day like that. that that day was so unique God stopped the sun why he regarded the prayer of man elisha prays open this guy's eyes he doesn't see it Lord boom God opens his eyes and then elisha's going to pray an opposite prayer towards the towards the Syrians. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now you and I look at Elisha the prophet, a man of power and just absolute divine, miraculous, you know, ability and the mantle on his life and just the, the double portion he's inherited of Elijah's spirit. And we go, well, he's unique. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is what prayer does. Not necessarily the one who is praying. The power is not in the one who's praying. The power is in the one who answers the prayer regardless of the one who's bringing the petition. I mean, I've seen someone's uh, broken leg in a worship service healed because a timid, just soft-spoken, probably teenage, maybe early 20s age girl comes up, says a very simple prayer. Doctors were baffled. He, he saw the x-ray. It's broken. Couldn't even stand on it. In one second, he's jumping, running around, praising God for what he's done. So the power is not in the one who's praying. You can make it about, well, Elisha's on another level. I'm not saying he's not. But I am saying this has nothing to do with the fact God answered and regarded his prayer. And we'll get to this in future episodes. There's a lot of factors in our prayers, our variables, when it comes to God answering. The fact of the matter is, Elisha looks at his servant who doesn't see the spiritual, and he goes, God, open his eyes. And he does. And then he goes, and could you shut their eyes? And God goes, boom. Just like that. That's the power of prayer. Prayer changes things. Luke 1.13 we have a barren Elizabeth who's old and way past childbirth age. And Zechariah's tending to his priestly duties. He encounters an angel. The angel comes and goes, don't be afraid. Like they have to preface those conversations with, right? I wish I was that intimidating, had right, To tell people, don't be afraid. I know I'm super manly. I don't have to do that. I have to say, please fear me. I, I promise I'm scary. But the angel said, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name John. God answered his prayer. God answered their prayer. Were they righteous? Were they living hope? Yeah, absolutely. But how many years had to go by? How many How many tears had to be shed? How many, you know, battles with hopelessness and despair had to be fought up to this point before God finally answers cuz it's the right time. So when I say prayer makes a difference, a lot of us look at Elisha and go instantaneously, immediately, not always. Sometimes the years go by and God is regarding a prayer you prayed 30 years ago and it's just not the right time to do what you've asked. And there's going to be situations like that in your life. There will be situations where it's like Elisha and you go, God, would you? And before the words have even escaped your lips, he's done it. And you go, this is only God, only God. And then there are moments, and this is the temptation with prayer sometimes, is the longer you pray something without seeing results, the more hope you lose along the way, huh? The more despair starts to settle in, the the more you lose faith over time. It's almost like, this is the temptation, it's like, well, the longer I pray, the less reason I have to hope that he's going to actually do it pause. Did Elizabeth and Zechariah potentially give up hope? We're not sure. It just says they reached the point of, you know, past the point of giving birth. So I think on some level, on a physical, in a physical sense, they're like, it's not possible anymore. And God goes, your prayer has been heard. We don't know what prayer specifically. Was it the prayer Zechariah prayed when he was 25? The prayer he prayed when he was 40? The collection of prayers? I think what matters is that God answers when he knows it needs to happen. It's on us to make sure. And if, if God says no, and this is the tension. There's so many thoughts. This is the tension with prayer. Sometimes we don't know how to discern between what we should hold out for and what we should walk away from. Sometimes God says no and we're like, in faith, I will keep asking. And God's like, this is not faith anymore because I already said no. I already said no. Like the the Israelites, when God goes, I'm not going to take you to the promised land because you done screwed up. And they go, hmm, we're sorry. Let's go. And God's like, I'm not with you. That's not faith. I told you no. And they're like, he's with us. Then they get their butts whooped and they turn around. He's not with us. I told you I wasn't with you. This is what happens. This is the tension in prayer. Sometimes I don't know how to discern between, is this something I should believe you're going to change or something I should accept and be okay with you not changing? What if the answer is both? What if it's, I believe you'll change this and I'll hold out till you do, but even if you don't, I'm okay. And sometimes that, that, that distinction between like, God, do you want me to continue asking for this and believing you're going to do this? Or are you telling me No. It's sometimes making that distinction is so difficult. And so we'll exercise faith in the wrong direction. And God's going, I already said no. And other times we'll give up when God's like, I didn't say no. I actually didn't say anything. I said nothing. And you walked away thinking that was a no. Man, I wonder how many prayers throughout our life are going to be answered years, years apart from when we actually asked. You just don't know. Prayer makes a difference. When you cultivate a lifestyle of prayer, when you commit yourself to communication with God daily, when you involve God in every aspect and sphere of your life, when you learn to pray all day, as much as you can, not in a forceful, awkward, weird, self-righteous kind of way where it's legalistic, but in a way where you're like, I just want to be in constant communion with my Father. When you learn to develop a lifestyle of prayer, everything can change. Acts ten thirty one. we have Cornelius, a Gentile who has, should have no part in this kingdom, and yet God graciously extends the offer. And Cornelius is recalling to Peter and all the people what happened. Cornelius goes, four days ago, around this time, I was praying in my house around the ninth hour and a man stood before me in bright clothing. I knew it wasn't my wife, so it freaked me out. And Cornelius, he said, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa, go find Peter. He's with, T- He's with Simon a tanner. He's going to come. And then Cornelius goes, well, here you are, Peter. What do we do with that? God regards Cornelius' prayer in what way? in the sense that God is going to bring the gospel of his son through Peter to Cornelius Cornelius is essentially the first uh, approved Gentile in the new covenant that we have an explicit statement about this is the history of the church and Cornelius is the first like he's with us he's been approved the spirit of God Cornelius is the first with his family, with his friends. This is the entry point for the Gentiles to come into the full degree of access that the Jews have to the kingdom of God through faith. And you go, why, why did God answer Corn- he, God could have started with any Gentile. Think about it. God could have gone to any Gentile to let them be the first officially approved Gentile in the kingdom. Why did he start with Cornelius? It's right there. Your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. I wonder how faithful Cornelius has been up to this point to God, a devout, God-fearing man. How long has he been believing and following and obeying and serving God? How many times did it look like his prayer was amounting to nothing immediately? And yet God is collecting all of these prayers throughout Cornelius' life and he's going to use that as the the motivation for why he's going to bring the gospel to Cornelius. He's collecting these prayers throughout Cornelius' life and he's considering these things. God considers our prayer. Cornelius, we don't know what he was praying. We don't know if he knew to even pray for the same things God actually brought. The point is... God regards the prayers of Cornelius when he's thinking about who he's going to send the gospel to first in the Gentile world. Your alms have been remembered. I wonder if Cornelius at any point throughout his God-following journey ever thought, are these prayers doing anything? Are these alms, do they matter? And God goes, well, they matter. And this is why I say, when you restrict God to answering in only one way, it's either instantly or not. You're missing out on so much he wants to do in your life. We need to play the long, the long game when it comes to prayer. We need to pray the, play the long game. Instead of thinking only immediately, right now, in this moment, in this season of my life only, we need to expand our perspective And realize God inhabits eternity. He's not confined to time. And the way he's working to answer my prayers is not only about me, but it includes me. And it involves so many people who will be impacted by the prayer he answers, even when I'm long gone. We often think God answering this is about me and my temporary convenience and happiness right now. When the story God is telling and the glory he gets will well transcend your life when you're gone. It will go way beyond you. Can we pray and have a long game, a long-term prayer life? You know what's interesting? This is the motivation to pray, right? Prayer changes things. Prayer causes things. Prayer makes a difference. Inevitably, the question comes up, that atheists will use as an attack point on the Christian faith. And the atheist, the unbeliever, will look at scripture and say, God doesn't change his mind, and yet it looks like God changes his mind. That's an inconsistency and a contradiction. Therefore, your Bible's written by fallible men, a made-up tradition. It's not a real faith. It's not a real God. And on and on and on and on, and they'll use this as an attack point. Does prayer change God's mind? I'll answer that in one moment. Before I do, you need to know number two. Here's why we should pray. God has made prayer to be the way certain things will happen. There are certain things God will inevitably do and no one's going to stop him. And no one has to jump on board. No one has to co-sign or approve of what he's doing. He's going to do it whether humanity stands in the way and tries to stop him or not. So there are some things that are going to happen no matter what. There are other things God has ordained. These things will only happen by prayer. And even if they don't happen, they're not going to stop the overall plan God has made regarding his son and his people. In other words, they're like these pockets of activity throughout human history that don't affect the grand scheme of what he's doing. So even if they don't happen because people don't pray, it's fine. But I wonder how much in our life, how much in our world, in our culture, in your city, in family, is not happening because people aren't praying. (laughs) So let me take you to Genesis 20, verse 7. This is the first occurrence of something like this, where God has ordained And this is not to restrict God. This is not to minimize his sovereignty. This actually magnifies his sovereignty, meaning God is in total control. He does what he wants, how he wants in the heavens above and the earth below. So there are some things in scripture you're about to see where God says, I have ordained prayer to be a necessary requirement for this to happen. In Genesis 20, we have a scared Abraham approaching King Abimelech, Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah, and says, "Ah, she's just my sister. He's kind of telling the truth, right? Abimelech, the king of Gerar, takes Sarah in, and God encounters King Abimelech in prayer and warns him and keeps him from sinning. God comes to Abimelech, and he says, you're a dead man. What a great, you never want that to be the introductory remarks from god when he meets you it's never a good sign it's not exactly how you start a love letter you're a dead man because of the woman you've taken she's a man's wife now abimelech had not approached her so to be clear he's had no sexual relations with her so he says lord will you kill an innocent people sounds a lot like what abraham will ask god when it comes to sodom and gomorrah continue Did he not himself say she's my sister? Abimelech's going, Abraham, I'm taking his word. He said that this is his sister. And then she said, he is my brother. So in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God says, I know. And this is exactly why God encounters Abimelech in the dream. I know. This was done in the integrity of your heart. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now then return Abraham's wife. He's a prophet. Now watch, watch what he says. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. So you're telling me Abimelech was on his way to death without the uh, involvement of God in the dream, without God invading his dream and being like, whoa, buddy, you're on the road to death. And notice how Abraham's prayer is a part of the way Abimelech will live. If you don't return her, God says, you will die. You and all who are yours. So Abimelech and Abraham have a little conversation. Abimelech is not happy. He's like, my guy, Abraham, come on, dude. And Abraham goes, I saw it. I was scared. And then verse 17, this is what Abraham does. Abraham prays to God and God healed Abimelech. Did God need someone to pray in order for him to heal Abimelech? No. Absolutely not. Did God sovereignly ordain, in this specific circumstance, I'm going to require prayer in order to effectively heal Abimelech? Yes. And there are a number of reasons, I'm sure, you know, approving of Abraham, showing that he's validated him as as the patriarch of this faith. You know, blessing Abimelech, showing that he's the god of all these different things. I'm sure, I'm sure. But Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, has a wife, Sarah. He goes into the king of Gerar. They're in this city. The king goes, "Hmm, I like you. You are pretty. Come to my house." He takes her. Abraham goes, "She is my sister." Wink, wink. It's half truth. Abimelech's encountered in a dream by God. God goes, If you don't give her back, it's not your wife, you're a dead man. But if you do, Abraham will pray for you. Okay, God heals Abimelech and uh, also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. In other words, watch. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. So here's what happened Abimelech takes Sarah. God responds to that unintentional sin. There's still a consequence by closing the wombs of Abimelech's female slaves and wives. okay, And then God decides in his sovereignty, I will open their wombs and I will spare Abimelech's life through Abraham praying for Abimelech. And that will involve Abimelech showing remorse and giving the wife back. And he does. But notice the prayer of Abraham is a necessary component of Abimelech living. Fascinating, man. And God does not always do this. It's not always that prayer is a necessary requirement for something to take place. In this specific scenario, it is. And it's not just prayer generally, it's prayer from a specific person. That's why God says he's a prophet. So he's validating Abraham for sure as... And you're going to see the same kind of idea in Job 42. There's this idea of the one who prays for the ones who've made mistakes. And it's ultimately foreshadowing Jesus who's the one who does that perfectly. The one who offers up, uh, up something that God truly regards on behalf of the rest of humanity. Job 42. Job's got some very bad advice and counsel and... His friends have not been very kind and they haven't been comforting. They're kind of like blaming him going, "Eh, God wouldn't just do this. You clearly did something wrong, Job. And the Lord speaks these words to Job or rather to Eliphaz. Sorry. After speaking to Job, God looks at Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, the Temanite, and he says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. You've not spoken of me what is right, just like my, so, my, my servant Job has. He's spoken right things. You guys have not. Therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you've not spoken of me what is right. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer in verse 9. You and I go, why did God, that seems like an, a big old workaround, like a roundabout in the middle of the road. No one likes roundabouts. It's like, can I just go straight? Can I just, just straight, please? I don't have to go around nine times yielding. I want to go straight. And Sometimes this is how God's will feels like. It's like, this seems like a big old roundabout, God. You could just heal Abimelech in Genesis 20, you could just forgive these guys in Job, but there's a way God has ordained for them to be okay. It's through Job's prayer, the prayer of a righteous man, or in Genesis 20, the prayer of a prophet, the prayer of one God has anointed, ultimately foreshadowing Jesus, the one that God truly regards on behalf of humanity, okay? And the Lord accepts Job's prayer. Why did he involve Job at all? Why involve Abraham at all? Why is it that certain circumstances, in order for something to effectively happen, God has sovereignly ordained prayer is the only way I'm going to move and act and do something here? Why? And I don't have the answer, like I really don't have the answer. There are a number of things we can consider. And talk through and go, well, God's about his glory and our people. And we're in a process and sanctification and and all this different stuff. But at the end of the day, there are stories like this. Moments like this in history where God makes it clear, I won't until someone prays. Or I will if you pray. And if you don't, then I won't. And he includes the prayer of his people. James chapter uh, 5, the prayer of a righteous man. The prayer of a righteous man. Can accomplish much huh this is this is abraham this is uh, job why this workaround to involve someone else to be a part of the prayer for that thing to happen because god is amazing and he involves his people and he partners with humanity james 1 5 it says if any of you lacks wisdom just ask god And you go, ah, it can't be that simple. Well, actually, he gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given. And it will be given. So look, ask God. You could almost ignore this middle section. I'm not saying you should, but if we did, ask God, it will be given to him. It's that simple. In other words, if you want wisdom... God has made it available. And you go, why can't we just have it? (laughs) Why can't I just be in a situation where I need wisdom and God's like, "Hmm, my guy needs wisdom here wisdom and we go yay why why can't God just do that why this whole ask me and I'll give it because of the relationship because of the partnership because of the father-son or father-daughter relationship God wants to develop with you and bring you into intimacy and walk with you and grow your friendship and show you who he is and make you more capable of following him and make you trust him more all these different variables come into the answer of why does God require us to pray for something He could just give us right now because of relationship. Because of relationship. So wisdom is one of those things God says, you won't have it if you don't ask for it. If you lack it, you ain't getting it unless you ask. You'll get it. You'll get it if you ask. I wonder how many other things in our life fit into that category of god will if you pray but it's not happening because we're not asking hmm. second corinthians 1 then we're going to get into this super fun question does prayer change god's mind second corinthians 1 regarding prayer paul's talking about ministry and i love this he says you also you must help us he's talking to the corinthians you must help us by prayer. Now, specifically, the context of this ministry and evangelism is being delivered from peril, being delivered by God. And Paul's saying, you guys at a distance can really help us. He doesn't say send money. He doesn't say build a building. He doesn't say send a children's pastor. He doesn't say uh, send a really talented musician. He says, pray. Pray. That's how you can help us. Why? Well, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing God granted or granted us through the prayers of many. This is how we begin to answer the question, why does God ordain prayer in certain situations to be the only way that certain things will happen? It goes like this. If I ask God and he answers that is a direct response to my request and it emphasizes the personal relationship God has with me. It shows that he's involved in my life and I give God glory for directly answering a petition I had. If God just does something in a general sense, of course I'll thank him. Of course I'll praise him. Of course I'll honor him. But it doesn't carry that personal request element in it. So it goes like this. Paul is saying, We want to be delivered when we're ministering and evangelizing and we want God to work, okay? So you guys pray for us and they go, why? And he's going, well, when God answers your prayer, many people will give thanks for that clear request God answered. But if you don't express that request and bring that petition before him, it's not a direct response to you. It's just a general thing God is doing, okay? So in other words, Paul is saying, your prayer helps us, but it's also giving God more glory through more people thanking him for a clear request being answered. And part of the way, the main way that they help Paul is through prayer. God has made prayer to be the way things happen in certain situations. In Paul's mind, Effective ministry and deliverance by God is only going to happen when people pray. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying this. Why, why involve people to pray if I can just pray myself? This gets into the question of like individual prayer versus communal prayer and, and all these different elements of how to pray together versus personally and what God's doing. Prayer is so so important, that Paul is saying, God will do these things and people will praise him and give thanks if you pray. So does prayer change God's mind? Well, to back it up, those are the two big reasons to pray. Prayer makes a difference. It causes things. And God has made prayer to be the way things happen in certain situations that will not happen without prayer. And we have to be okay with that. Next week, we'll dive more into why else we should pray. And there are three, one, two, yeah, there are three specific things I want to say about that. Um, It'll involve the more personal element of prayer. So today is essentially part one of why we should pray. Next week will be part two, why we should pray. But I don't want to overload you. I never want to just overload you with information to the point where you can't do anything with it because you're so in awe of all that God has taught you and then you're just like going sweet and then you walk away and do nothing I'd rather pace this thing for you so does prayer change God's mind this is something I was just exploring this morning and I thought it was worth sharing there are three explicit times in the old testament where God will say he doesn't change his mind There are lots of other places where it will touch on God does not change in substance, in essence, in character, in who he is, right? He does not change. But specifically, he doesn't change his mind in three places. In Numbers 23, here's the context. Israel, the nation, has come out of Egypt. They're now encamped on the outside of Moab, or at least... From the mountains of Moab, which is a nation, you can see the Israelites covering the land. The king of Moab, who's King Balak, he walks up the mountain like you do on a Sunday and he sees this terrifying sight. And he's heard rumors. He's heard about what the God of these people did to the Egyptians. So he knows he's next. He's terrified. So he goes and hires Balaam, a prophet, who is a seer, who legitimately hears from God. It's not fake. Balaam truly hears from God. And Balak, the king, hires Balaam to say, Balaam, hey, all these people, they're too much. I need you to curse them or ask God to curse them for us and I'll give you some hefty money. Balaam, the first time, goes to God and goes, God, curse these people. And God goes, no. What? No. I've blessed them. Those are my people. I've blessed them. Balaam comes back to Balak and goes, "Mm, God kind of said he's not going to curse them. And Balak goes, "Mm, let me take you somewhere else. Balak, the king takes Balaam to a second location because in their mind, spiritual certain places had more of a spiritual sacredness to them, right? So Balak takes Balaam to another mountain peak, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And then he goes, offer sacrifices, go ask God if he'll curse the people here. Balaam comes back from praying and this is what he says to the king of Moab. And Balak goes, is he going to curse them? And Balaam goes, not exactly. (laughs) Balak, Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Many Muslims will use this verse to say that God can't enter into his own creation and become a a human being, take on human flesh, which is a tremendous amount to impose on this text. God is not a man that he should lie. That's the clear statement. In what way is God not like humanity? Well, human beings lie. God does not. And he's not like us in the sense that he'll change his mind. This is the kind of changing of the mind he's referring to. Lying. Not being truthful. Okay. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God said he'll bless the nation of Israel. You're trying to get him to curse. God will not change his mind. He won't lie. He said he's going to bless them. What's interesting is that after this, Balaam and Balak will come together and scheme to get Israel to essentially curse themselves, right? So they'll draw them into idolatry and sexual immorality. And through that, Israel will bring consequences on their own heads. So if God won't curse them, let them be the reason they're cursed. Let them curse themselves. Behold, I received a command to bless. He's blessed. I can't revoke it. It almost sounds like Balaam wants to because he really wants money and he really wants the fame and he really wants the status. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. There's no enchantment against Jacob. There's no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It doesn't lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So Balaam essentially comes to Balak the king and goes, Yeah, God said he's not going to change his mind. He already said he's going to bless them and not curse them. What's fascinating is that they end up actually being cursed because of their own change in proximity to God, which is key. 1 Samuel 15, and I'm going to put a pin there and touch on that in a little bit. 1 Samuel 15. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man that he should have regret. In other words, this is like fallible, weak um, human beings that are not omniscient, that don't have perfect purpose. Human beings have regret about decisions and lie change their mind in that sense the glory of Israel will not in the sense that he changes his mind about what he um, wants to do and goes "Mm, I changed my mind I actually don't want to do that I'm going to lie God doesn't do that and the context here is King Saul kind of being dropped as the king. So there's two statements. God will not change his mind. The third, Isaiah 31 verse 2. God is wise and he brings disaster. He doesn't call back his words. He will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. So this right here, that he will not revoke his words or call back his words as another way of saying he will not change his mind. Three times in the Old Testament, it says God will not change his mind. So what do you do with these passages? And I'll explain. I'll explain how prayer actually plays a role in this. Okay? So before you go, Bible contradiction, I'm going to abandon the faith and be an atheist. Take it easy, Charlie. If your faith crumbles because of this, I don't know if it was ever saving faith. Jonah 9 or 3. This is Nineveh, and um, the prophet Jonah has come and brought the news of God's coming wrath. In other words, here's, here's the message Jonah brought, which either wasn't recorded fully or he only shared what he wanted to. Jonah goes, "In 40 days, Nineveh's going to be absolutely decimated, overthrown." The people believe God. They repent, they put on sackcloth. They, sackcloth,, they turn from their evil ways. Here's what they say. Here's what the king says. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Here's why. Who knows? God may turn. God may relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So what does God do? When God saw what they did. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster he said he would do. He did not do it. In other words, what does God do? He changed his mind. Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, Isaiah 31 God will not change his mind. We either have a very, very clear contradiction or something else is happening. I want you to pay attention to one thing. Two things. God pays attention to and responds to what they did. What did they do? They turned from their evil way. What did they do? They called out to God. What's another way of saying calling out to God? Well, in repentance or confession, that's prayer. So the people of Nineveh, they turn, which involves prayer, right? Repentance. And God does what? He responds to their change in mind. He responds to their prayer. So prayer and a human action are part of this. Okay? Take note of that. Prayer and a human action God responds to is something you're going to see consistently in the next seven or eight verses, okay? Jonah 4 verse 2. This is what Jonah prays. He prayed, oh Lord, isn't this why, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God. I I knew you're merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster. This is Jonah's own admission of why he left. A lot of people think Jonah was scared. No, Jonah hated the Ninevites. Hated their guts. Wanted them all to die gruesome deaths for what they did to his people. He did not want to see them avoid j- wrath and disaster, and fire. He wanted to see that come upon them. So he ran. Why? Because he said, I know you're a God that relents from disaster. So twice already, God relents from disaster. God changes his mind? You go, well, it doesn't explicitly say in the Hebrew that he changed his mind. Exodus 32, 12. God is responding to Israel's heinous crime. That's what it is. They've committed high treason against the king. And he says to Moses, I've seen this people. They're stiff-necked. Leave me alone. Let my wrath burn hot against them, and I'll consume them, and I'll make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord. In other words, what? Prayer. Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land with a great and powerful hand, right? Why should the Egyptians look at this and go, "Uh, with evil intent, God brought them out just to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Why would we give the Egyptians reason to say that? Please turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, pause. Is Moses reminding God of something he's forgotten? Can God forget stuff? No. Is God, is Moses telling, informing God of something he didn't know? No. God knows all things at all times perfectly. God doesn't need to be reminded. God doesn't need to uh, remember. So I forgot. Sorry, Moses. That's not what's happening. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. You told Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I've promised I'll give to your offspring and they'll inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he spoke of bringing on his people. Three times, God relents from what he intended to do. But every time God intends to do something when it comes to bringing disaster on a nation, a city, a people, a family, there's always an off-ramp. There is always a way out. There's always a way of escape. And it's called repentance and faith. If you can distinguish between the two. I'd say they always are accompanied by each other. Jeremiah twenty six nineteen. This is what... Um, Jeremiah says about Hezekiah. Hezekiah, he's like a a wishy-washy king. He's great, he sucks. He's great, he sucks. So he ended... Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? And uh, hold on. The officials and all the people are saying to the priests and prophets, kill Jeremiah. But some of the elders spoke to the people and said, well, Micah prophesied, da-da-da-da-da, And did Hezekiah put Jeremiah to death? The answer is no. No. Didn't Hezekiah fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? Yes. We see this with Isaiah. Didn't the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? Yes. But we're about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah... Put him to death. Sorry, he's referring to Micah, not Jeremiah. My bad. I'm already tired. The answer is no. Hezekiah actually heeded the words of the prophets. And guess what? Because of that, there there seems to be always when disaster comes. I'm going to add a third third element I just recognize It's always a prophet involved. Yeah. Prophet. Prayer. And God responds to the action of an individual. Think about Abraham praying for Abimelech. God intended to put him to death. But the prayer of a prophet stopped that. Jonah. Brings the word. The people repent. Moses. Exodus 32. Prays for the people. He's a prophet. Jeremiah. or Micah brings the word to Hezekiah king of Judah. Hezekiah heeds the word of the Lord. Entreats the favor. Prays. And God responds to that change and repentance. So there are three elements in every instance I've seen of God changing his mind. A prophet, a prayer, and God responding to the prayer of the person that God intended to do something to. Jeremiah 18, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord, behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, God is saying, I'm like the potter, you're like the clay, I can mold you into what I want you to be if you soften yourself and become pliable. If you're hard and stiff-necked, if you ever had really hard Play-Doh, you can't shape it in anything, it just breaks apart. But if you have brand new Play-Doh you just get from Target, like my little girl just got, you can mold it in anything. But the harder it gets, the harder it becomes to mold. So God is going, in my hands, you're like clay. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, then I will break it down and destroy it. Watch. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, which involves prayer, which involves prayer and repentance, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. Whoa. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll build and plant it, like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and if it does evil in my sight or like Israel, then I will relent of the good I intended to do it. So, 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 this is God relenting of the intent, not the definitive outcome, but the intent. A lot of us intend to do stuff. Now, the way God changes from what he intended to what he actually does is not like man. It's different. It's different. And I'll explain why. If at any time I declare, uh, you know, a nation or a kingdom, I'll build it and they they don't listen, then I'll relent to the good. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I am shaping disaster against you. I'm devising a plan against you. Watch. Return every one from his evil way, and amend your ways and your deeds. Why? Because God will relent of the disaster he's declared to bring upon them. Nineveh. Think about the preaching of Noah and the flood. If the people had turned and and joined the ark, people could have been saved. Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleading with God. If there's 50 righteous, if there's 10, if there's 30, if there's 5. He didn't jump from 10 to 30. That'd be weird. If there's 10, if there's 5. And God goes, fine, 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 fine. And each time, Abraham's showing this intercessory prophetic prayer conversation he's having with God and showing that he can actually work with God on what God's wanting to do. Because God goes, I heard the cry from Sodom and Gomorrah, it's pretty evil. And Abraham goes, my nephew's there, Mm, Lot's there. God, can we have a conversation? God is inviting Abraham to come into the conversation. That's what's happening why would God talk out loud if he didn't want Abraham to hear it? He wanted Abraham to hear and to intercede and be involved. And Abraham does. There's all these opportunities God intends to bring disaster. There's a prophetic voice. There's a voice to to bring reason and truth and bring the opportunity to change so that God will respond to that change and relent of what he intended to do because really the good that comes is a response to the change you've made. Jeremiah 26, verse three. It says, it may be that they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. Why? So that I may relent of the disaster I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Skip down to verse 13. Now therefore, mend your ways in your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster he's pronounced against you. So guess what? God intends to do certain things if people do not change or if a prophetic voice and prayer does not get involved like Job or Abraham or Moses. Okay? Thank you for that gift, Jennifer. Very much. So notice This is God intending to do, but it's conditional. It's the intent, but there's always an off-ramp and a way out for someone who wants to get out of that disaster. Think of Rahab in in Jericho. God has decreed destruction of the city. I wonder if Rahab was the only one who legitimately had a chance to be saved and get out. So... Let me take you to one more verse. Notice in, in every of these every one of these scenarios that I found where God relents of, which some translations I believe the KJV will change it to repent. That's for me, just with all the cultural baggage we load into that term in our current English, that's not a good translation. Because it just makes it sound like God is He made a mistake and He's very apologetic for a moral failure. That's not it it's not it at all. Um But the relenting it shows a, a kind of re- regretting, remorse, lamenting, sorry, um, but that is not to the neglect of his foreknowledge and omniscience. So I'll get to that in a minute. Amos 7.3, again, a prophet. Watch. Amos, uh, this is what the Lord God showed me, Amos says. Uh, he was forming locusts with the latter growth Uh, was just beginning to sprout and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, so there's just locusts being formed to come and destroy everything, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Why? The prophetic voice, the intercession, the prayer of Amos got involved on behalf of the people skip down to verse six same thing this is what the Lord showed me the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep it was eating up the land and I said Lord please cease how can Jacob stand he's so small and the Lord relented concerning this this also shall not be said the Lord God twice twice So when God relents, or in these circumstances, changes his mind, when he said he would not change his mind, what do we do with that? Here's what I've seen. And again, the three elements that are present in each and every circumstance is that God's decision stands with a condition. Does that make sense? What God intends is conditional upon the person he's intended that for or the group or the nation or the or the city or the family he intends to do that to there's conditions anyone in Sodom and Gomorrah in the flood in Nineveh in Israel anyone can change their mind and in that sense does God change his mind and that's a violation of what we saw God said he wouldn't change his mind no here's what's happening God doesn't change his mind unprovoked. I'll say that again. God does not change his mind unprovoked without any outside influence or causal reason, which in every circumstance he does, it involves prayer. God changes his intent in response to how humans change in their relationship with him. If I'm against him, he's against me. This is the whole delivery of the law in the Old Testament. Thank you for that gift, Debbie, very much. This is the whole the whole cursing from Mount whatever and the, and the blessings on Mount whatever, Marcus knows the names, but they're speaking the blessings and the cursings upon Israel, if they should, if they should, right? So Israel has a choice. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want the favor of God? Walk in his ways. If you don't, then don't walk in his ways. There's destruction. There's wrath. There's fire. There's judgment. In other words, here's how I see it. See it, okay? God changes the intent towards the individual or group. But in the mind of God, these two separate intents remain constant, meaning there's judgment, wrath, fire, and destruction for the evil. And there's life and favor and grace and blessing for the one who repents and believes. Is this not the gospel? That we're on a one-way track to hell with no way out until enter Jesus. If I change my mind and believe in the gospel, God changes the original intent that was heading toward me, which was death and destruction. This is the gospel. So the way I see it is there's two streams we can be in. Right, There's the intent God has for the wicked and the evil, and there's the intent he has for the good and the righteous. Right, Both of these are predetermined realities. Both of these are two different streams any person, any group, any city can be in. And when we change from unbelief to belief or from sin to repent, God's intended actions toward us change. But in his mind, these two realities remain distinct and constant. It's we who change. If I go outside... Right now, the sun is not piercing into my room, okay? It's dark. I just have these lights on. The sun is not piercing through my room. So if I was weird, I'd be like, I guess the sun's not shining today because I'm weird. But if I go outside, guess what I would see and I'd feel? I'd feel the rays of the sun. Is it that the sun left or that I changed in relationship with the sun's rays i changed i actually went outside to be under the rays of the sun that's that's how this seems to work is that there's sun for anyone who wants to go outside and there's darkness for anyone who wants to stay inside and it's not that god necessarily goes you know what it's that prayer changes our proximity to what god intends to do to us So you can be towards God's face or you can have his back toward you based on your position, right? So again, it's always dependent upon human action, human decisions. God responds, the changing of the mind. And this is not a violation of God saying, I will not change my mind. He's talking about lying. He's talking about not doing what he said. If God says, I will do this and it's conditioned upon something, right? Then that's fine. That's not God... Uh, violating his statement that he won't change his mind, that's us changing in proximity to God to experience another facet of what he has to offer, right? So repent, that's why I don't like the word repent when it's used of God, uh, because it just, the the cultural baggage in the English language doesn't help. Is it a right word? Sure. Is it a word I'll probably use when I talk to the everyday average believer? No. No. Because it just is unnecessarily confusing. What I'll say is that God changes his, or I'll say this, I change position and proximity to God. And based on whatever of the two realities I find myself in, the intent of God can differ. There can be an intent of judgment if I'm an unbeliever, or there can be an intent of blessing. But both streams are always flowing, right? Right? So God looking upon us with grace and favor and blessing is that, oh, look, they met the condition I gave. And that's why the prophetic voice is so important when it comes to these situations where God changes mind. That's why prayer, I would say, in some sense, in some sense, okay, not in an entire complete sense, but prayer in some sense does change the intent God had for an individual, nation, community, whatever it ends up being, a church, I mean, this is the whole story of the, the first three chapters of Revelation. If you don't, then I won't. If you do, then I will. And prayer is a part of that. So can God intend to do something to our nation right now that we don't know is happening behind the scenes? Sure. But if, the, if, he, if he says, this is happening, I'm going to do this, there's a condition and there's a way out. There's an off-ramp for people. It's called Repent. It's called change your mind and believe. That's it. It really is that simple. So I don't believe this becomes a conversation of does do, does prayer change God's mind? It's does prayer effectively matter at all? And God has predetermined in terms of his grand plan what he's going to do that won't be stopped, right? But again, there are some things God won't do, right, if we don't pray. So it's like this. God is saying I won't if you don't pray. That's the that's the current intent. But if I pray and I and and the condition is I do pray, then all of a sudden God does that. Because I met the condition called prayer. If that makes sense. So in some sense, yes, prayer can move God to action he wasn't intending to do without prayer. But in another sense, God, in his omniscience, knows what he will do. He knows who will pray. So, sure, he knows when he'll change his mind, when he'll respond to humanity. So, in that sense, you didn't technically change his mind. He knew he would. And that's how people usually explain Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, God is inviting Moses to to ask for what God intends to do. No, God intended to do wrath against Israel. He intended judgment. Moses prayed, right? And that in essence, met the condition for God doing something different to Israel is that if you pray. So in, in every one of these cases where God changes his mind, there's an, there's an element of prayer, some kind of prophet is involved, and Jesus is our ultimate prophet, which is why the gospel is all over this, and then there's um, the, the response God has to the change a person makes, Um, So there's always an off-ramp. There always seems to be a condition when it comes to what God intends to do to said person. Um, So I can miss out on the good God wants to do and I can also avoid the consequences that would come if I had gone into sin. But there are some things in life um, that God intends to do that there's absolutely no way to change. Garden of Gethsemane, for instance. Jesus going, If it's your will. And the Father goes, It's not. You know what you came here for. And He goes through with it. So, if someone asks you, Does prayer change God's mind? I, I'm trying to think of how I can give you, like, an easy, summarized, and succinct way of saying it. I would say, um, Prayer moves God. To do what he wasn't intending to do until I prayed does that make sense Um, so for our nation Marcus brings up Charlie Kirk live streamer right now for our nation for our leaders can our leaders change sure can our government structure and the people the corrupt politicians who are leading the country change sure can the nation at large change sure God intends destruction at the moment. It seems that's what we're headed towards. Just my own personal opinion. But should a nation change and believe and repent? Well, they meet the necessary condition for God to do something that would only happen if they prayed. Hence the gospel. You want the salvation of Jesus? You believe. You don't? God intends destruction for you. But he doesn't want that for you. He's given you a way out. Okay. I hope that's helpful. So why should we pray? Prayer makes a difference. Prayer causes things. Prayer moves God to action. That's that's the simplest way to explain it. Prayer moves God to action. You don't have to have this conversation. Some conversations with atheists you can just shut down and leave, and they'll think they won, but they're not worth having. Because it's a it's a semantics conversation. It's a, they're not in. They have no intent to even like. They're just looking for a way around what you're saying. It's like eh, this isn't profitable. So if an atheist goes, "Does God change His mind?" Huh? Uh, you go, "Hmm." Prayer changes. I'll say this. I said it earlier. I, I need to write it down this time. I'm gonna write it down so I can paste it in the chat. I would say this to the atheist. Prayer moves God. To do what he didn't intend to do without my prayer. Does that make sense? This is how I'd say it. Does God change... Ah, does prayer change God's mind? Simple answer. Prayer moves God to do what he didn't intend to do without prayer. It's that simple. Hopefully I didn't overcomplicate it. All right? So that's why we pray. Next week, we'll explore even more in depth why we should pray. I will say this. It involves uh, prayer being necessary to our life. It involves the help we need. And it involves impossible situations. So... In the YouTube description below, I have yet to, um, I have yet to, you know, post the document because usually when I when I preach these messages, the point is that you guys would be able to um, have uh, the notes for this message, so you can watch it with people, use it for small groups, use it for home study, and then what I want to do is give you guys small group questions that you can, you know, bring people through. So. Um, I will have that document uploaded to my website and linked in the description below when when uh, Wix is working because it wasn't working this morning when I tried to upload it. So um, yes, that will be uploaded. And the intent behind that is that you guys would use it to lead small groups or watch these sermons with people and talk through them. Maybe your church. And so if you didn't already know this, this is Above Reproach ministry. This is an online ministry, even though I was an hour late. And uh, we have completely free resources for everyone around the world that are only possible because of God, number one, and because of generous supporters like you guys who make all these resources accessible and possible to everyone around the world. We have free devotional studies, free online Bible study courses, all of my sermon notes available, Bible study worksheets, the Bible studies courses. If you really want to learn how to read the Bible and go in depth, it's going to have you create an account um, I turned off this one setting for the Bible study courses. There's a 40-day, a 27-day, and 11-day. There was a setting that was like making people confirm their email. I just eliminated that because it was causing too much issue. So you don't have to do that anymore. You can just go straight into it, use your email. The only reason you need an email is to track your progress. Um, so, And then if you would like to join our online church on the Discord app, please do come join. Um, you can also get a copy of my book, Fruitful, The Essential Keys to Living the Most Abundant. Uh, fruitful, satisfying Christian life, you can sample it right here. You can listen to our podcast. All the messages go on podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast, for the local church and for people in local church. And if you'd like to donate and make this ministry possible, I have a wife and two kids. We just moved into our first home here in South Carolina, the Greenville area. It's beautiful. It's crazy. It's a miracle. And um, you can give to this ministry and all the people that make this possible and the resources um, right here, uh, you can mail a check, I know it says Florida, that's just currently where I have a peel box, and then you can give to debit or credit card right here, uh, you can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, be a monthly supporter on Patreon, get access to other resources that we have for free as a gift to you for being a patron, and then, um, if you'd like some church merch, go check it out, White all right, we have a bunch of cool stuff, that's all I got for you guys today, Thanks for watching and being a part of this. I'm sorry I was super late. I technically wasn't late, just to be clear. I was talking to nobody for 46 minutes, which, story of my life, (laughs) I'm always alone. But I love you guys and um, keep moving towards Jesus. That's the whole point of this, is that you would find yourself um, at the throne of God more, all right? So I'll see you guys Wednesday for our Q&A. In the meantime, as always, keep moving towards Jesus.